Okay, many of you were uh, out and about on vacation last week. I really would encourage you to listen to last week's message if you get a chance. Uh, it's hard to recap everything we did in there. Let me take a, a, a two-minute stab at it to start what we're going to talk about today. Um, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo. Uh, the Latin word credo means I believe. A creed is therefore a statement of what you believe. The Apostles' Creed is structured with three I believe statements. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Those three statements form a Trinitarian creed. Apostles' Creed is Trinitarian. It proclaims God as a Trinity. And the Apostles' Creed proclaims, therefore, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. So you're about to find out where you came from. I'm going to talk about Him being Creator and where uh, the universe came from. The, the Apostles' Creed is not only a Trinitarian statement, is what I'm trying to say. The Apostles' Creed tells you where you came from, how you get saved, and how you are to live. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed was written by the disciples of the Apostles. The generation after the Apostles, the Church Fathers began to pull together the teachings of the Apostles so that if you wanted to say, what is Christianity in the Roman Empire, in about a hundred words you could say what Christianity is all about. It is a summation of the teaching of the Apostles. Think of it this way. The Apostles' Creed uh, is then a summary of your Bible in a hundred words. Now that's no small feat. You know what? Uh, you've tried to read your Bible. There's a lot of words in there. And to be able to summarize, the com a matter of fact, the Bible's so complex, you get lost in the story. Before you know it, so-and-so's begetting so-and-so, and the Dukes of Edom are these, and, and, and here are the numbers. Before you know it, you, you kind of lost the storyline of what's happening. So if you back up and you understand the outline of what's happening, the Bible is summarized, 100, 107 words in English, depends on what language it's in, but it's a summation of your Bible. Now, let me get to the elephant in the room, and this is why I have to recap this morning, because most of you grew up Baptist, non-denominational Bible church, a Pentecostal church Christ, uh, who did I miss? I don't know, a few Catholics in the room, whatever, but you grew up in different traditions, mostly of which are Southern Bible Belt evangelical traditions. And so I need to deal with a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, whenever we go back and talk about the, 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 the early church, you're going back to European Christianity. The early church is European. It came out of Jerusalem to Antioch. Paul launched the missionary journeys. And man, now it went all over the world. But European Christianity swept through Europe and became an influence of the world. Man, it was a phenomenon of history and, and, and amazing grace, actually, that transformed continents because of the European Christian movement. So your roots are European Christian Yet something is very uh, unusual about America in the South in, in late history here. Uh, we are ruggedly uh, biblicist and individualist. Uh, uh, very, we watch so many John Wayne Westerns where you're out off in the sunset and you're self-sufficient and rugged and you don't need anybody and you don't need to be connected to anybody and I can do everything on my own. I'm totally self-sufficient. The problem is it's not, it's not true. Nobody can live that way. It's not sustainable. It's not the way God created you. God created you about relationships and community and, and civilization. And that was God's design. He put us in families. He put us in churches. These are all God's institutions and His organizations laid out 
uh, in the Holy Bible. But because of the rugged individualism of the South in America and the Bible Belt, we really just want to cut the cord to anything not like us right now in, in our history, which means we want to separate from the roots of Christianity, which for us are predominantly European Christianity. So allow me to talk from a personal point of view. Obviously, I grew up Baptist. You guys all know that. My dad was a Baptist pastor. The tradition I grew up in has an anaphylactic reaction to anything Roman Catholic. Okay? Anything actually European Protestant. It didn't have to be Catholic. Man, you see a, a, a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or somebody in a clerical collar or preaching in clerical robes. Uh, you, you see maybe some Methodist practice uh, uh, sprinkling or this or that. And, and my tradition has a, I don't even know how to say it, knee-jerk reaction. It's not a subtle reaction. It's an aversion. It is a rejection, a wholesale rejection of everything that comes from European Christianity as if we didn't come from Europe. That's what's amusing about this. As if Martians landed in Texas and started a Baptist church or something. You know what I'm saying? It's just not the way it actually worked. Uh, When you're reading the Apostles' Creed, this is what 1,700 years of Christianity had printed and painted on the church wall. Now, I'm old... But I'm not that old. But I'm old enough that even when I was a kid, I remember going into churches. Now I'm going to find where the old people are in the room right now. How many of you have ever seen an Apostles' Creed printed hanging on the wall, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot? There you go. Liz, you're, you, you and I are, are the old people in the room. I mean, that's the way it is. So uh, that was the way Christianity operated for 2,000 years. Apostles' Creed was said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, certainly no friend of Catholicism. Martin Luther prayed the Lord's Prayer, read some of the Psalms, and said the Apostles' Creed every morning in his devotion time. The Apostles' Creed said, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, here's what I need to tell you and what I told you last week. When the Apostles' Creed says Holy Catholic Church, it does not mean Roman Catholic Church. So just to prove my point, because I know some of you, even now, if I say Catholic, there's just something in you that just says, oh, heck no, Pastor, we're not going there. You need to let that go, because that's not what the word means, nor is it the way the church fathers used the word. So I'm going to put up the Merriam-Webster. If you don't trust me, trust Miriam. Merriam-Webster definition, Catholic. Here comes the definition. Forming the church universal. Is everybody okay with a Jesus only started one church and we're all brothers and sisters? Okay, we're all together so far. It's definition B. Forming the ancient and undivided Christian church. Everybody still okay? Okay, I am too. When capitalized, the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, I get that too, don't you? She sends her daughter to a Catholic school, capitalized. It means a Roman Catholic school. Definition two has nothing to do with religion at all. The word Catholic, definition to Merriam-Webster, comprehensive or universal. As in, oh, Greg Jarrett has very Catholic tastes in music. It means he likes country, he likes pop, he likes rock, he likes classical, he likes indie, he likes this, he likes that. Very broad and universal tastes. You would say eclectic tastes, maybe. Broad and universal. Oh, her education is very Catholic. Broad and universal across many 
subjects. Now just put that out there. So when you see that in the Apostles' Creed or you say that in your devotion time, many of you are going to memorize the Apostles' Creed this summer. You've already told me. We've got a copy in the chair for you. Uh, electronic copy is also available and I don't know where that is or how that is, but I know that it is, okay? So uh, Jeremy can fill us in on that in a little bit. But it's, there's a link out there, and you can get uh, get this version. There's a couple of different versions out there, just like there are versions of your Bible where the language has been slightly updated so it's more understandable. Um, uh, Jesus, uh, we believe Jesus uh, was crucified, dead, buried. The little more modern version says was crucified, died, and was buried. They're very subtle. So you're using the Anglican, the Church of England version is the one you have in the in the chair beside you and the one that we're putting on the screen. Very, very easy to understand. What I want to say to you is many of the evangelical practices that you practice here in, in the Bible Belt in the South are merely overreactions, aversions to anything the European Christians, and had you gone back in time, just 300 years before the founding of America, if you've just gone back to Europe for 1,700 years, many of the things that we have aversions to were the common practices of Christianity. We've just not been, been taught that. When you confess the creed, as they did for 1,700 years, you remember where this started in the Roman Empire, when you confess the creed, you are taking a countercultural stand. Listen, the world said Caesar is God. The Christian stood up and said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That was a very countercultural statement to make, one that could get you killed, by the way, in the Roman Empire. And uh, so even today, when you say the Apostles' Creed, it goes counter to culture. And you'll see that in the statements of the Apostles' Creed. When you say the Apostles' Creed, you are joining your voices to thousands and thousands, I say millions of other Christians from every tribe and every kindred and every tongue, just like you're going to do in the future again when we gather around the throne of God and all praise God's get You're joining your voices to theirs and you're saying we believe what Christians have always believed since there ever were Christians going all the way back to Jesus Christ. The creed ties us to the past and it ensures that we have not invented our own version of the faith. Now, this is a very modern American thing right now to have Christianity take some nuances that the Christians of the past would, they would not recognize at all, okay? Some of the modern Christian practices. And by going back, you say, why would we even study the Apostles' Creed? So we can know that we're anchored in truth. So that we can know that as we go forward into unknown waters here, we know that we are, we are anchored to something that has stood the test of time. The very teachings of Jesus passed to his apostles, summarized by their disciples, have now put in symbolon, I explained this last week, symbolon creed form, and the symbolon is laid down, and you can lay your faith down next to the apostles' faith, and you'll know if it's genuine or not. How simple is that? So now, I'm ringing just a little bit. If y'all bring me down just a little bit in the house. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to discuss what we believe about God Almighty. Now, it's a tough topic. I understand a finite, limited understanding being trying to explain an infinite being, omniscient. It's just, I know that's even a little bit silly, but I have to explain God and you have to explain God because somewhere in your journey as a follower of Christ, as a believer in God, surely somebody, if not your own children, are going to say to you, what's God like? 
And that may be one of the hardest questions on planet Earth to answer right there. Explain God to me. That, that's, you're going to find that's not as simple as you may think. If someone were to come to you and were to say to you, how would you describe God? I've tried to role play in my mind with what I know of my community. Here's what I came up with. Pardon me, sir, how would you explain God? Well, God's like this. He's always there for me. I can always talk. He's always listening. I can always talk to him. He comforts me and he gives me peace. Okay, but that could also be the description of a teddy bear. Pardon me, how would you describe God? Well, God's a giver of joy, uh, happiness. He drops little blessings in my life all along the way. You, You could have just described the Easter Bunny. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize God. I'm trying to trivialize our understanding of God. Pardon me, sir, how would you explain? Can you tell me about God? Yeah, here, here. listen, when I'm troubled and I'm afraid, God brings me security and brings an inner warmth into my life. You've just described your favorite throat, couch, and cup of hot chocolate. You understand what's happening here? It brings me security and warmth and happiness and joy, a listening ear. What I'm very interested in is how the Bible explains God because the Bible is the only way we really know about God. He wrote a book that would tell us about himself where he could speak through himself, his own voice, and through the voice of those who would write the Bible and he could explain to us who he is and and what he is. Now the Bible reveals many attributes of God and you could certainly name them. I can name a kindness. He is kind. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is faithful. He is good. He is patient. And this service would not be long enough. We could just keep doing this and just name attributes of God. But listing God's many attributes does not truly give a sense of who God is. So instead this morning, I want to offer up a contrast to you in a few minutes that will, I think, explain more clearly and give you a better understanding of who God is. First, though, let me deal with this. The Creed says, I believe in God the Father. Let me see if I can work through this with you for just a moment. Jesus taught us in the New Testament that God was His Father. That was Those were Jesus' words. I will pray to my Father. I can say to my Father. As a matter of fact, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, He said, pray this. Not pray like this. Pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. When we pray this, we are echoing Jesus' voice who taught us to call God our Father also. He said, pray this. You heard me pray, Father. You pray, Father. I want you to call God what I call God. He is my Father, and I want you to enter into that relationship, and I want you to call God your Father. So you you may sometimes say, why don't we close the services with the Lord's Prayer? When we're in that uh, season here at church, we close it a lot with the Lord's Prayer. Because it's what's really cool about the Lord's Prayer is when you're saying those words, you're standing side by side with Jesus Christ and you are saying to God what Jesus said to God. You are pouring out your heart in the very exact same words and understanding that Jesus poured out because you are standing in the same relationship 
that Jesus is standing in when he says those words. For example, let me show you how deep this runs in the New Testament. Before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus prayed for his disciples. That's John 17. You know this final last prayer of Jesus, very long, very beautiful, where Jesus prayed for his disciples. But Jesus didn't just pray for his disciples, Peter, James, and John. In that prayer, Jesus was praying for you. Let me read it to you. John 17, 20. Here's Jesus praying. My prayer is not for them alone, Peter, James, and John. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. God, I'm praying not just for Peter and James and John and and these guys, but God, I'm praying for those people who are going to live in Texas one day and they're going to believe the words of the apostles. They're going to believe the apostles' creed. They're going to believe the apostles' message. The message that I gave to the apostles going to be passed to those folks in Texas. And God, I want to go ahead and pray for them. All right, what's God's prayer for us this morning? Verse 21. That all of them may be, what's the word? Unity is a big deal to God. Relationship is a big deal to God. That they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we, Father, are one. And since Jesus relates to God as His Father, to be one with them is to stand right next to Jesus and say to God, Father. Now don't be shy about those words. This is a huge privilege. This is a big deal. You're not just saying, hey, distant God... Powerful, distant being. No, you're saying one with whom I have an intimate relationship. Father, Papa, Dad, I want to talk to you for a few minutes. Jesus has invited you into the same relationship. Let me show you how deep it runs. After the resurrection, you guys know this story. Jesus has rises on Sunday morning. He's there in the garden. Mary Magdalene's coming down. The disciples are coming down eventually here. And there's an exchange that happens in the garden at the tomb. Jesus has risen from the dead, and, and, and when, you know, Mary sees him, man, she's just, you know, clings to him. And, uh, the point is not that he's saying, don't touch me in the old KJV. The point is, she won't let go of him. Let me read the story now. John 20, 17. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I gotta go. I got places to be, and I've got some things to do. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Go instead to my brothers and tell them, here's the message, and I want you to be the evangelist. You're going to go proclaim the risen Christ. First person ever, Mary Magdalene, to preach that sermon. He said, you go tell the guys these words. Watch these words. I'm ascending to my Father and... He's invited us into that relationship. How cool is that? He's saying, because your faith is in me, I'm going to adopt you and we're going to be brothers and sisters and God's going to be all of our father. How about that? God isn't just my father. God is your father. And he said, I'm going to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. And when we make the confession, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we're expressing more than a theological statement. It's not just a theology we're espousing. We're expressing a relationship that we have entered into 
with God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And now that relationship with our Father has become the defining relationship of our lives. Everything now hinges on this for the rest of my life and eternity. And we call God Father simply because that's what Jesus called God and what Jesus taught us to call God. But many people are uneasy with the term Father. Father raises some questions. Maybe you've never thought about this and you don't know the questions, but I'll give them to you. Here's the questions you should be thinking about. Does this masculine language give preference and privilege to the males over the females, since this is all masculine language? Did God create a class system then in church, in humanity, where males are preferred over females? Is that what's happening through this use of father? Uh, uh, Maybe we'll podcast answer that for you this week. Here's another question maybe you should think about. Does the Bible teach there's gender in God? Because the Bible's using father, a masculine name, and son, a masculine term. Is the Bible teaching there is gender in God? Are we to think, there's a great third question, are we to think that God is male? Like earthly males. Don't pull a muscle now, but that's a deep one. You understand? We call God the Father, and maybe you've never thought about it. Is God actually male in the way that you males are male? Is that what the Scripture is teaching? Yeah, you'll be listening to the podcast this week, won't you? The Bible writers, the Bible writers were very sensitive to those questions because of the culture they lived in was filled with many, many different gods and goddesses. Some male. Some female, lots of female gods in the ancient world. Diana Artemis is one we've talked about before that Ephesus had really the whole city was built up around the tourist industry of that temple of Diana uh, Artemis there. And, and the female gods were very, very common. The gods of the Bible writers, period. The gods were mischievous. You've studied Greek mythology, right? Yeah, they were mischievous. They were vindictive. They are angry. They are conspiring. They are needing constant uh, pacification. I mean, throw a virgin in the volcano. Why? So the gods will be happy. They constantly have to be pacified in some way so their anger will not spin out of control. Here's the big one. They are unpredictable gods that do not act in the interests of humans. So when the Holy Spirit's inspiring the Bible writers to write, they are very sensitive to these issues. Early Christians were very careful to use words that would differentiate an explanation of God the Father from the pagan gods of their culture. I just give you a few for the sake of time. Uh, The pagan gods, for example, are many gods everywhere. Okay, But listen to what the Bible says about God the Father. Listen to the difference in language here. Deuteronomy 6.4, one of the most famous prayers in, in Uh, Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... How many gods? Monotheism. That's where the term comes from. Deuteronomy 6, out of Judaism. We are monotheistic people, even though we believe in the Trinity. Our roots are in Judaism. Judaism is monotheistic. 
There are not three gods. There are not 3,000 gods. There are not 30 million gods as there are in India. 300 million gods in India. We do not worship gods and goddesses. Here, O Cornerstone. Here, Fort Worth. Here, Keller. Here, Texas. The Lord, our God, is one God. He is God, the Father Almighty. Now, the Bible writers are very sensitive to this. Moses is writing that. He's just come out of Egypt. There's gods everywhere. Very sensitive to this language. The pagan gods are unpredictable. Now, God is high and holy and righteous, and He may do unusual things, but He is very consistent in His character. And in many ways, you do know what God will do. As a matter of fact, Moses wrote this in Numbers 23, God is not human that He should lie. He is not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? No, if he speaks, he'll act. That's what Moses is saying. Does he promise and not fulfill his promise? No, if he opens his mouth, God will deliver on his promises. So what I'm saying to you is, while the Bible writers are very sensitive to this issue, while the gods can be male or female in their culture, They're writing about something very different in the Bible. God the Father, listen carefully, transcends gender and the material body. God is a spirit, and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. God transcends gender and the material body. The words Father and Son are not being used with bodily ideas of gender in mind. You understand what I'm saying? We're not talking about whether God has boy parts or girl parts. Neither is the answer. He is not the father in bodily terms like you would think of a male. God did not physically procreate and bring forth the son, Jesus Christ. That's a return to paganism. That's what the Greek... You guys study Greek mythology, right? Come on, talk to me a little bit. And the gods got together and procreated and made demigods and lesser gods and other gods and and all kinds of gods. That's paganism. God did not procreate. He is not a father in that bodily sense of masculinity like you're thinking. The words father and son are being used in a relational way when describing God. God is not male because He's called the father. As a matter of fact, God been being referred to in your Bible is referred to with both masculine and feminine and neuter terms. The Holy Spirit, Spirit is a, is neither masculine nor feminine. It gets a neuter gender, uh, 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 noun. And the Godhead, when, well, let me give you an example. Colossians 2.9. I think we've got it. Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, uh, that's a feminine word in Greek, deity. For those of you who grew up in a Baptist church, KJV, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. You remember the word KJV? Bodily is the word. In Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Greek word theotes for Godhead, for deity, is a feminine word. So is God a female? Because they use a Greek feminine word to describe Him. The answer is no. Don't be scared. The answer is no. He's not feminine. In the Old Testament, Atzer is a feminine, it's a word used for Eve at some point. It's also a word used for God at some point. Our helper, God, our helper. What I'm saying to you is 
You don't try to apply sex, gender to God in the way you apply it to you as a, as a human. The early church fathers understood this. Somewhere it got lost in the shuffle getting to us. As a matter of fact, the early church fathers, and I'm talking about 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 AD, the disciples of the apostles, their favorite sermon illustration for illustrating God, the one that recurs in their sermons over and over, is God as a nursing mother. That's the way they described him to their people. They said, okay, you're trying to understand, you come from, from, from all these polytheism, all these little gods. We're trying to explain the one true God from whom we gather all of life and all of our strength and from whom supplies all of our nourishment in whom we dwell, in whom we exist. Without him, we would have no, no power and no nutrients and no understanding. They used a nursing mother in their sermons to describe God. It's the favorite illustration of the first batch of Christians after the apostles. That's what they preach to their people. And it helps you understand because that's exactly the illustration Paul used in the year 50, 60, 70 AD. He's using words like that. Uh, nourishment, whenever you see it. As a nursing mother, cher- as a nursing mother cherishes her kids, so we long to, to take care of you. That's Paul's language. Okay, cool. That was quick. So why do we call God Father then? We call God the Father because we're in a relationship. And father is a relational term that we can understand. You're gonna, God's hard to wrap your mind around. So God said, let me describe myself this way. Jesus said, call him your father. Does everybody kind of understand what a father is? Is that pretty easy to grasp? And so Jesus said, think of God as your father. It's a relational word that humans can understand. One becomes a father because he has a son. You're not a father until you have a child. And a son is a son because he has a father. Father and son are words that we immediately associate together, like Andrew and I. There is no Andrew without an I. And I'm not a father without an Andrew. He's the one who made me a father. You say, why? When he came forth, I was a father. Father and son go together. One, not one without the other. They are connected. They are inseparable. When you think about Jesus and God, you know what you should think? Connected and inseparable. Amen? Who is Jesus? He's God. You say, well, who should I refer God to? You just call Him your Father. Why? You're in a relationship with Him. How did you get to be in a relationship with the Father, pray tell? Who did you believe on? Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. You put your faith in the Son and you're in a relationship with the Father. Why? They're God. Which one? Yes. Yes, exactly. You figured it out. They are God. One is the bodily manifestation. God in a body. And God the Father Almighty before in a body. Is God, is a, he transcends a body. A body doesn't contain God. How about that? God's not can't be put in a box as you soon shall see in this story. So... I want to say one more thing about Father. Father should mean something very positive and wonderful to all of us. Now understand, it doesn't always. And maybe you had a great Father, and He was everything a Father should be. And if He is, when I say Father, you get a warm feeling inside and say, praise God, God is like my Father. I learned, listen, I'm going to make a statement. I learned about God because I had a good Father. And He loved me, and He protected me, and He provided for me, and He cared for me, and He nourished me. And therefore, when He said to me, God is like your Father, I was like, oh, well, that's got to be a good thing, right? But my Father spanked me sometimes. 
So does my Heavenly Father do that too? We're about to find out in just a few minutes. You're going to turn the page in my notes. We're going to find out. But is that okay? Does that mean God doesn't love me or does love me? Because that's kind of hard to figure out a little bit. So Jesus said, call God your Father. Now, if you had a, didn't have a great Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I am sensitive to that. And it's hard. I understand that makes it, that's a little bit of a hurdle, even in coming to an understanding of God, not having a great Father. And that's our human failure. That's not... You, you can't say, well, I gosh, wish God would have called himself something different. It's not God's fault. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, it's our failure, not God's, if we get that a little muddy. But Father should mean something wonderful. And I think for those of you, uh, all of you, it does. And if it doesn't, then I want to say to you, strive to be that parent that you always wished you had had. That's really the key to that. Let's deal with Almighty very quickly. Only God who is Almighty can relate to a world with complete love and complete patience and complete goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, we experience power throughout all of creation. There is power all around you all the time. Each living thing in this creation has its own unique power. And you may say an ant is small and insignificant, but it can lift so many more times its body weight, it's unbelievable. There is power all around you all the time. But God does not have to compete with the powers around you for His power. He is Almighty. He's not trying to get your power or get the President's power or get the Congress's power or get nuclear power. God is not in competition with these powers. His power transcends these powers. His power is actually the source of all of these powers. Let's see if I can bring Almighty into an understanding. I think the greatest sermon on this was preached by Jesus in one sentence. Let me read it for you. Jesus is on trial. He's been beaten up all night. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. Pilate's grilling him. Jesus is just looking at him like, you don't even know what's going on, man. And won't answer Pilate's questions. You're going to remember this, aren't you? Here's the exchange. Pontius Pilate. Do you refuse to speak to me, Jesus? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you now jesus is going to speak now there's something we're talking about watch what jesus says jesus answered you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above okay jv you would have no power at all pontius Pilate, except my father gave it to you you know what that means there is power all around us all the time down here that is the power of wind the power of tornadoes the power of water, the power of lightning and thunder, the power of humans and elephants and ants, and the power of beavers, and the power of electrons and neutrons and protons, and that is the power of the ocean and the power of the tides and the power of gravity. You are surrounded with power all the time, but it is God's power that made those powers and put those powers in place and agreed that they could exist Without God, there would be no power. He's not in competition with the power. He transcends the power. He spoke those powers into existence as if it were nothing to Him. Amen. That is God Almighty. And He is not to be trifled with. I think we misunderstand power. True power is not about having the ability to control others. That's where we get messed up in our modern culture. True power is not the ability to control others. Controlling behavior is actually a sign of weakness and insecurity by people living in fear. 
that's worth maybe rethinking about this week. True power is not about controlling people. It's about turning them free. Controlling people live in fear. True power is the ability to love without holding back. True power is giving without considering reserves. True power is the ability to nourish others and give them the freedom. This is what we do with our kids. Give them the freedom then to go be your own person. Freedom to grow and develop and mature. Now we get to the crux of the matter of who God is both And God is not one or the other. Listen carefully now. Here's the whole enchilada. God is not one or the other. When you're describing God, is He love? Is He kindness? God is not one or the other. The best way to understand God is that God is both and. Pardon me, sir. How would you describe God? He is both loving and judgment against sin. Let me set the scene. We're going to go to the most quoted verse in the Bible. You ready? Let me set the scene. Moses was told to go get God's people and deliver them from Egypt. Everybody reset your mind, okay? We're going 1,500 years before Christ, way back. Pharaoh, pyramids, slaves, camels, Nile River, crocodiles. Moses has grown up, goes to Mount Sinai. God says, burning bush, take off your shoes. Here's what I want to say. Go get my people Set them, bring them back to this mountain. He's called Moses to go get the people, bring them back to Sinai where they are going to marry God in a covenant ceremony. That's what's going to happen. Now, go back and listen to the covenant series. They're going to go pledge marriage vows, essentially, to it's the word. They're going to go covenant with God on Mount Sinai in a a relational covenant with Almighty God. Here's the scene, Exodus 19, verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended down onto Mount Sinai in fire and the smoke billowed up like smoke billowing, like a volcano billowing up from a furnace and the whole mountain and the ground Man, right over here on a Sunday morning when Craig gets on the bass guitar, and you'll understand, the whole ground is just shaking beneath their feet like this, and the mountain's on fire, and the lightning bolts, and the thunder is rumbling, and there's a glow coming from the mountain. That is the scene. And then God starts speaking audibly from the mountain so that all the people can hear it. God is audibly speaking, and the people can hear it. It's Exodus chapter 20, next chapter. You'll know that Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. God is speaking. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You will not bow down to them. You will not worship them. For I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of them who hate me. He is giving the Ten Commandments and we just got started with number one. Okay? And as He's giving the Ten Commandments, the the fire, the cloud, the ground shaking, Israel is camped all around the mountain and they're hearing all of this 
And here's the scene, Exodus 20, verse 18. And when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled in fear and they stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not have God to speak to us or we will die. I... I, I want you to kind of paraphrase that in your mind, what's happening. Israel is meeting the God of which they're the bride, if you want to say it that way. They're meeting the God to which they're about to enter. They're going to meet Him for the first time. And they've discovered that the Lord God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, is not like the gods of Egypt. Moses, you talk to God. We're going to go change our underpants. That's exactly what's happening. They are terrified. You get the message and you come tell us, but please don't make us listen to that. We, our kids will have nightmares forever after that meeting we just had. That's what they're saying. We've just met God and God is, well, scary. God is scary. Now I want to ask you a question. Why is He scary? God is not scary because He's bad. God is scary because He is almighty. And the almightiness, it's not really a word, but the almightiness of God is beyond your human imagination. His almightiness, as you might have imagined it, doesn't even touch the tip of the iceberg. It's just just a fraction of what's real out there. They said, oh, we're going to go meet God. How cool is this going to be? Put on your clothes, kids. We're going to go to church and meet God. And when God showed up, everybody ran back home terrified and said, oh my goodness, it just can't be. This is not what we imagine. He is almighty. He is not tame. He is not docile. He is not what we imagine. And God did not fit in the box that they had built for Him in their hearts. Instead, they discovered that God was unimaginable in glory and might and power. And they were just frankly blown away by being in His presence. They were so afraid that they said, Moses, no more of this. You talk to God, we're going to back up and go to our tents. Just tell us what He said and we'll be good with that. So Moses, pick the story up. So Moses, I'm going to fast forward now because the giving of the Ten Commandments and the laws happens. Fast forward to chapter 32. So Moses goes back up to the mountain to talk to God. And he's gone up to Sinai, up to mountain for 40 days. More than a month. 40 days. And in his absence, they make the golden calf to worship. Exactly what God just told them. Do not do this. There is nothing more offensive to the nature of God for than you for to say, you see this stump? This is God. Imagine if I called my dog Chris Yancey. It's worse than that, Chris. Imagine if I made a cardboard picture of my dog, adorned it with flowers and, and wreaths, and then said, the cardboard dog, not even the real dog, is Chris Yancey. Chris Yancey would be offended at that. Have you ever put yourself in God's sandals? Let me read. Exodus 32, 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. Uh, Hebrew words, Elohim. 
If you've studied your Bible, that's also the same word that's used for the Godhead, the Old Testament. Let us, use, let us make Elohim for us, gods. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He's been gone 40 days. Enough. What have you done for me lately? Let's move on. Two, Aaron answered them, okay. Take off the gold earrings that your wives and sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol and he cast it in the shape of a, a calf, baby cow, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your Elohim. These are your gods, O Israel, who have delivered you from Egypt. What do you think God's feeling right now? Who sent the ten plagues? Golden calf? Who broke Pharaoh's will? Golden calf? Who sent the death angel? Golden calf? Who told him to put the blood on the doorpost? Golden calf? Who parted the Red Sea? Golden calf? Who, who did the miracles? Golden calf? Yeah, if you were God, would you be ticked? It's okay. If you were God, would you be ticked? Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. And Aaron announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, the formal name of God, Christianity. They attached the formal name of God to the altar at the golden calf, and they said, tomorrow we're going to worship, we're going to have a worship service to Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word for the Lord, his formal name. We're going to have a worship service to Yahweh. Everybody come drunk. We're going to have a nice orgy here to Yahweh. Now, how do you think God's feeling about the situation? Well, let's turn the page and find out. Camera shifts to Mount Sinai. God is incredibly hurt. His anger is rising. He tells Moses in that very chapter, verse 10, these words. Moses, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. If these people are that pagan and we can't get it out of them, I'll wipe them out and I'll take you and your wife and I'll start Israel. Listen, I gave Abraham a son when he was a hundred to a woman who was a barren. And if I have to start over today, I'll start over today with you. Step aside, bud, and let me cue up the fireballs. Well, he's ticked. Now, if you don't think that's your God, that's your God. Now, this is my whole point in teaching you about God. God is not the Easter bunny. And God is not a cup of hot chocolate. And God is not a teddy bear. He is the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And He's ticked in Exodus 32 because He just told them, don't do this. And they just did it and stuck God's name on it and said, this is the worship of God. Now Moses jumps in the middle of the fireball and says, no, God, don't do it. Now i got to summarize my time's got five times. God says, step aside. Moses says, don't do it, God. Don't do it, God. And Moses begins to repent of their sins on behalf of the people and beg God not to punish them the way he's about to punish them. And God finally relents after the fifth time and says, okay, Moses, I'll step back from this and cool off a little bit, but you better go down there and tell your people that judgment's coming on their sins and you better execute it. That's funny when God says, go tell your people. That's funny. Hey, listen, you want to laugh? Read this chapter this week and just take all this in, man. It's both funny and terrifying at the same time. Exodus 32, let's read a piece. 19, Moses approached the camp. He saw the calf 
and the dancing and his anger burned. He's got the Ten Commandments. You remember this famous thing? You remember Cecil B. DeMille? And he's got the tables right here and Charlton Heston's coming down the mountain with his white beard. It's all playing out right here. And when Moses approached, he threw down the tables out of his hands and smashed them to smithereens at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20. And he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder and he put it in their drinking water and said, now drink it. Some of you thought you'd been in church all your life and you knew the Bible. Moses said, drink it. Are you will spinning? Why? You know what happens to stuff you eat after a few hours? You know what you do with it? Where it goes? And what it looks like? There's your God. There's your God. There's your idol. How dare you compare that to God? Some points are being made right here. Exodus 32.25 And Moses saw that the people were running wild. And Aaron had let them get out of control. And they became a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the entrance to the camp. Famous words now. And he said, Whoever is for the Lord, let him come to me. And the Levites rallied to him. Let me fast forward. They did as Moses commanded, and that day there fell 3,000 people. You say, why? Because you have not comprehended God correctly, I'm afraid. This is my message to you. Moses goes back up to talk to God. And Moses says, I'm going to paraphrase, you'll recognize quickly. Wowzer. It's not in the Bible. Wowzer. Holy smokes, God. That was a totally intense 40 days right there. Ten commandments back up. 3,000 dead. Golden calf. Drink it. Let it go out. Uh, woo, holy mackerel. There's a lot going on here. God, I don't think the people really knew what to expect when we brought them out here to Sinai to meet you. I don't think they really had an understanding of coming to meet Almighty God and being near you. Yahweh got totally, totally freaked them out. God, I'm going to say I'm even a little surprised because back there a couple of days ago when you were like, I'm going to just step aside. I thought you were going to incinerate the whole nation, honestly. I have never, I've been up here talking to you a whole lot in the last 40 years and I have never seen you so righteously angry. God, I know that hurt you deeply when they called that statue Yahweh and they went into that revelry. God, I know that offended you deeply and God, I'm so, so sorry that the people you love so deeply have hurt you in this way. Now I want to say to Cornerstone this statement. Anyone who is in a relationship risks being hurt. But the risks are worth it. You cannot go through life without relationships. It's just not possible. It will not be a good life. The relationships are worth the risk you must take. You say, why? Because God takes some really big risks to be related to me. And sometimes I offend Him with my actions and my behavior and my thoughts and my words. And God takes really big risks to love me 
and he stays with it, and he keeps loving me, and we keep work, working back together. I repent, he forget, and this is really what I'm talking about because we're coming now to the most quoted verse in the Bible. Moses now says to God, we're right here, hang in with me. God, I'm so sorry they hurt you. Can you help me better understand who you are? I'd really like to know you more. Am I talking to anybody this morning who deep in your heart, those would be your words to God? God, I know we hurt you all the time, but I really want to know you more. And I feel like, God, if I knew you better, maybe I could be better. And maybe I would know how to pray better and maybe I would know how to behave better and if I could get my beliefs more solidified and understand you better, I would know what's required better. And God says, okay, I'll help you. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and He stood there with Him and proclaimed His name, Yahweh. What is in your Bible marked as Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are the two most quoted verses in the Bible by other Bible authors. These are the verses that the Bible writers keep coming back to to explain who God is. So focus now right on these words. God says, I will help you, Moses. Let me tell you who I am. And God passed in front of Moses, verse number 6, and God proclaimed this. These are Almighty God's own words. The Lord, I'll do it in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving the wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth generation. Not only is this the most quoted verse in the Bible, this is the first time in the Holy Bible that God has explained Himself, described Himself. Listen, it's worth noting, when God steps on the stage and says, okay, we finally got to the book of Exodus, we're almost done with the book of Exodus, we're two books into the Bible, let me tell you who I really am, I want you to know my character. He has just described His character. This is, pardon me, Steve Peters, we worked together for a long time. I know you're a follower of Jesus. Could you describe God to me? You don't have to wrestle with it. It's right here. Do you know who God is? Here's who He is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He is faithful. He maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, sin, and rebellion. And He punishes the guilty. He is not... This or this. He is both loving, compassionate, and kind, and He is the judge against sin. God has made Himself known to us, and to imagine God otherwise is to create your own God. Now this is what I want you to wrestle with this week. This is what I want you to think about when we say the creed we say i believe in god the father almighty what are you really saying because god has revealed himself to us and if you say i believe in hot chocolate god or easter bunny god you've made an idol out of god you've attached yahweh you've attached god to your imagination of god you haven't you're not really worshiping the real god you say is this really happening today people all around you are saying let's do god our way let's just do it our way 
They, God presents to us an uncomfortable reality. We don't like to think about there is judgment against sin or there is punishment for this. So they reimagine and redesign a more docile, less almighty version of the one we call God the Father. And they take their manufactured vision of God. They slap the title Yahweh, Almighty God, onto it. And you say, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. What kind of God do you believe in? A God that's good. Build-a-bear God. That's not God. That's you describing something that's not a reality. God is good and loving, kind, compassionate, forgives sin, forgives rebellion, forgives this, and He will judge the guilty. And here's what I want to say to all of us, and this is a little tough. God is who He is, and you don't need to apologize for Him. That's tough, isn't it? God is who He is. And you say, yeah, but he's just a little more almighty than makes me comfortable. Well, he should make you a little uncomfortable. Because you're a sinner. <laughs> and you're not almighty. And being in the presence of the atomic bomb would scare you to death. That power exists because of his power. That's nothing to God. Listen, standing at a volcano would make you nervous, wouldn't it? God said that power exists because I spoke it into being. It's nothing to me. Listen, getting caught in a riptide would scare you, wouldn't it? God said, I made the ocean, spoke it in existence in 30 seconds. It's no big deal. That power exists because of my power. Yeah, we should be a little reverential in the presence of an almighty God. He is both loving and He punishes the guilty. I guess in wrapping this up, what I want to say to you this morning is simply this. If you have any other imagination of God other than Exodus 34, 6 and 7, you need to pull that down right now. Because that is not God. That is your creation. God is like this. Now here's how you know, and I'll put a bow on it for you, okay? I'm going to tell you how you know that's true with a story. Here is the consistency of God's character. Years later, I'm going to fast forward 1,500 years. Uh, no? Yes. No, let me just fast forward 40 years. They're about to go in the promised land. The Israelites are tired of this traveling. And so they start complaining. This happens in the book of, of Numbers. And they start complaining and they say, God, there's no food. There is food. We don't like the food. We don't like the water. We don't like Moses. We don't like you. We don't like traveling. We don't like dust. We don't like the scenery. We don't like, we don't, we don't want to go back to, at least in Egypt, we had this and that. At least in Egypt, we had, and we just don't like being, what they're saying is we don't like you and we don't like being your people. We don't like the future you have chosen for us and we don't like you punishing us and making us wander in the wilderness because we keep defying you. You made us wander for 40 years and because you made us wander, we're mad at you. And so they started murmuring against God and they started murmuring against Moses and God sent fiery serpents among them and it bit the people and they began to die and they cried to Moses and they said oh Moses tell God to turn it off tell God to turn it off here's their words we have sinned we have sinned tell God we we're sorry we spoke against you and we spoke against God tell God please stop this you say who is God he is both loving compassionate kind generous and gracious and he punishes the guilty and Moses went to God and God said Moses here's what you do build a brass serpent put it on a pole Put it up in the air and go tell the people, follow God's way. Here's God's way. Look and live. And anybody who's bitten will live and will not die. You want to know who God is? Their judgment against sin. Put the snake on the pole. What do I have to do to live? Just look and trust God. There is the compassion and the mercy and the provision and the health and the healing. Yes, you sin, but anyone can live. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can, 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 can be 
in a corrected, get corrected and get in the right relationship with God. God is long-suffering. God is kind. God is free. And He will also judge sin. I need to tell that story because now in John chapter 3 is the real story. Jesus, anybody been watching The Chosen lately? Oh, you need to watch it. There is a Bible scholar, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night to have a clandestine meeting. He's what you would call a seeker. He's not saved yet, but he's seeking. He wants to know who Jesus is. He wants to know how to get into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, so nobody knows. And in a clandestine meeting, Nicodemus starts to ask questions. Jesus cuts him off, and Jesus cuts right to the chase. I want to read it. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Jesus starts talking about salvation and being born again in the kingdom of God. And this doctor of the law, this theologian, is drinking from a theological fire hose. He cannot keep up with the conversation. The conversation is going over his head. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me make it simple. I'll tell a story you understand. Here's the story Jesus told. John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And everyone that believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is rehearsing the story from Numbers. And Jesus is about to explain to Nicodemus who God is. God is both love and judgment against sin. We don't have to guess that this is Jesus' explanation because now the most famous verse in modern Christianity jumps on the page. Here's the next verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Here's the mercy and love and compassion and kindness of God that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might believe. KJV, sorry, it came out. There is love There is the mercy of God. There is the kindness of God. But God is both and. So read verse 18. Whosoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whosoever does not believe stands... What's the word? You're going to face judgment. You say, why? Because God is a holy God and He is both loving, kind, and compassionate. And if you reject Him and you sin against Him, you're going to face the judgment. You say, I don't like that God. That's God. So you're going to have to decide if you're on or not. You on the team or not? You said, I don't know who I want God to be. That's not your choice to make. You said, well, I want to make a God that's a little... You slap Yahweh on your own God, you have ticked God off royally. Don't do that. You violate the first commandments if you do that. Don't do it. Well, it gets better because now Jesus actually lived this story out in just a few more pages in your Bible. Let me show you the consistency of the character of the cross. Jesus is nailed to the cross. There, when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you listen, you tell me what you see. There is the love of God for you. For God's love of the world, He gave His only begotten Son. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and blood flow mingled down. Did it air such love? And sorrow meet. Or thorns compose so rich crown. The hymn writer nailed it. 
They understood God. And when you see the cross, you're looking at the love of God for you. That's you. But it's not you. It's His own Son instead of you. This is what Abraham was trying to tell you last week with Isaac. The Lord will provide Himself a sacrifice. Isaac, I have to do this. God said, God said, stop. And Abraham looks up and there is the ram. And Abraham throws his hands up and worships and says, Yahweh, Yaira, the Lord has provided. The Lord provides. That's what Calvary's all about. God provides. When you see Jesus on the cross, you're seeing who God is. You're seeing that the Father is loving and kind and compassionate and forgiving and gracious. And all you have to do is look and live. Put your faith in that. Put your faith in His Son and you'll have eternal life. But God is both and. So when you see the cross, there is God's wrath against sin. There is God's wrath. You may have wondered about these words. My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Because God is both and. And instead of pouring His wrath out on you, He poured it out upon Himself. God became flesh to meet the righteous demands of a holy God. And then God punished Himself in the form of His Son so that you could go free and trust in a good God who is gracious and kind and forgiving. And you don't need to taste His wrath because He already did the unimaginable for you. He judged Himself. So you could go free. So when I tell you God is almighty and He punishes sin, you don't need to be nervous. He's already punished His own Son so you could be forgiven. Is that not amazing? I mean, that is absolutely incredible. We're about to pray. And here's what I want to say to you. I believe... In God the Father Almighty. And when I see Jesus crucified, I see both a God of love and compassion and a God of judgment. I believe in that God. That God is not a God of my own design. I lay my version down next to the Apostles' version and mine matches. That's exactly who they said God was. My question to you this morning is that you're God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want this prayer to be maybe the most unusual prayer of your life. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let me ask you a very personal question. You won't need to answer out loud, just in your heart. Have you fashioned your own version of God? It is very possible you have. Have you fashioned your own version of God? A God who's less judgmental. A God who's a little more tolerant to sin. A God who looks the other way. And a God who never calls to account sinful behavior. Or is your God, God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? Just as God described Himself in Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh loving and kind and righteous and forgiving thousands 
of their sin and their rebellion. I am a God of mercy and kindness, but I'm also a God who will judge sin. Listen, some emotions might come and some tears might come when we realize what we've done and how we might have offended God and how we might have hurt Him. I don't want you to waste those tears and those emotions this morning. Let let it be a moment of repentance. And here's what I'm going to ask every person in this room to make your prayer to Almighty God and just to say to Him in these moments, God... Maybe in my ignorance I have fashioned my own image of you that is not accurate and not biblical, not not based in reality. God, I just want to say to you this morning, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I see now from the message how hurtful my behavior might have been to you and to our relationship. God, I'm sorry. God, you said in Exodus 34, you would forgive the sins of those who repent. Father, I repent. I'm sorry. Reveal yourself to me that I might truly know you just as Moses prayed. God, I feel like you've shown me a little more this morning of who you are. And I'm better for that. You can be honest with God this morning, even if it's a little scary. That's okay. He's almighty, and that that's, can be intimidating for sure. But remember, when he's almighty, he's also father. He's also father. Jesus said, pray to him, the father. And so you can say to him this morning, Father, I'm sorry. Father, correct my thinking, correct my understanding. And I promise your father will, if you'll just ask. He will, if you'll just ask. Accept God for who He is. Our Father, we bow before You this morning. And we are privileged to call You Father. And Lord, we are in some ways intimidated by Your power and presence. Maybe in every way. And maybe we very well should be. And God, sometimes You are much more than we imagined. Lord, help us to understand correctly. Lord, broaden enlarge, expand our thinking so we could understand you better and therefore be what you want us to be in a more fulfilling way. God, thank you for these words we've heard this morning that show us who you truly are, your nature and your character. And Lord, before we go to our homes, we want to say to you, thank you for being who you are. (laughs) We couldn't be who we are about you being who you are. God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son and you poured your wrath out upon him instead of us in our place. God, it's hard for us to imagine all that. But thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for being who you are. God, we believe in you, God the Father, This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.